Part Four, Chapter Fifteen of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston, Chapter Fifteen. The next morning, Clodagh rose imbued with new decision. During Gore's absence, things had borne a vague, even an impersonal aspect like all her countrymen she possessed a fatally pleasant capacity for shelving the disagreeable. While Gore was absent it had seemed so easy to meet Deerhurst on the footing he elected to maintain, the footing of calm, reassuring friendship. But now with Gore's return the aspect of affairs had altered. She was forced to look upon circumstances in the face, forced to consider her position she might be a shelver of difficulties, but before all things she was a woman in love, and with the instinct that such a condition of mind engenders she had interpreted a look in Gore's eyes when the name of Deerhurst had been mentioned between them and had recognized that it was not to be ignored. As she dressed that morning she mentally surveyed the courses of action that lay open to her, and with each moment of reflection it became plainer to her understanding that only one was worthy of consideration. However difficult the task, she must make known her position to Deerhurst, and trust to his generosity to find means of helping her. Her mind was full of this new and somewhat optimistic scheme when she came into the dining-room where Nance was already reading her morning letters. With a slightly absorbed manner she kissed her sister, and passing round the breakfast-table, picked up her own correspondence. In a perfunctory way she turned the envelopes over until one arrested her attention as being intimately connected with her thoughts. It was a letter from Deerhurst, and she tore it open hastily, skimming the contents with an eager glance. "'Dear little lady,' it began, "'yesterday the fates who watch over my affairs were unkind. The afternoon was frankly a failure, but I shall claim recompense.' I shall look in upon you in your box at the Apollo at nine to-night. A vexatious business matter calls me out of town to-day, or I should strive to see you earlier. But at nine make me welcome. Always devotedly, Deerhurst. She finished reading the note, then laid it down and hurriedly picked up another letter. How annoying it was! How malicious of chance! The second letter proved to be from Lady Frances Hope, it was from Brittany, and reproached her extravagantly for not having written since they parted at Tufnell. Imploring for news of her movements, it informed her that the writer, with Mrs. Bathurst and Valentine Serracold, was on her way back to London. She followed the lines mechanically, but her mind was elsewhere. At last she threw the letter down. "'Nance,' she said suddenly, "'Darling, Nance, I'm in a horrid difficulty.' Nance's high arched eyebrows drew together in a frown of concern. "'Nothing bad,' she said. "'Nothing about Walter?' "'No. Yes. Yes, it is. You know Walter dislikes Lord Deerhurst. Well, he was vexed at finding him here yesterday. And after he had gone I—I promised not to see him any more. I promised to break off my friendship with him.' Nance nodded, tactfully refraining from any joy in the proving of her theories. "'Yes,' she prompted softly and now Lord Deerhurst writes that he will be at the Apollo to-night and is coming round to our box at nine. Nance pursed up her lips. Oh, she said, and you'll have to put him off? 
that's the annoying thing i can't at least not easily why because he's going into the country to-day and won't be back till evening send him a note he must go home to dress before going to the theatre he might dress and dine at his club write to his club as well clodagh's perplexity showed itself in annoyance how absurd you are nance fancy writing a man two letters asking him not to see you and given no explanation it would simply bring him round here at ten to-morrow morning she poured herself out a cup of tea and drank it hastily life is a hateful tangle she said no it isn't darling if you only had a little patience clodagh made a very impatient gesture you don't understand i understand one thing that you care for walter clodagh looked up her mutable face lit by a sudden change of expression a sudden look of almost passionate seriousness yes i do care for walter she said suddenly i care so much that i honestly and truly believe it would kill me if anything came between us i have had lots of things in my life pleasure excitement admiration but i have never had happiness until now and i won't lose it i can't lose it the words poured forth in vehement sincerity then as she saw the expression on nance's face she gave a little laugh and put out her hand across the table dearest i've frightened you of course everything comes right if one has a little patience let's begin breakfast properly my head aches with another laugh she pressed nance's fingers gathered up her scattered correspondence and poured herself out another cup of tea nance spent a long morning with her future mother-in-law lunching with her afterward at her hotel clodagh left to herself ordered her horse for eleven o'clock and after two hours of recklessly swift riding in the row lunched alone at her club after lunch she wrote two telegrams one addressed to deerhurst london house the other to the club he most frequented these she handed in herself at a telegraph office and having dispatched them drove straight home at four o'clock nance returned to the flat to be met by the announcement that her sister had a bad headache and had gone to her own room full of concern she flew along the corridor and knocked on clodagh's door in a very low voice clodagh gave her leave to enter she opened the door swiftly then paused alarmed the blinds were drawn and by the subdued light she saw clodagh lying on a couch near one of the windows why clodagh what's the matter she ran forward and dropped on her knees by the couch clodagh extended two rather cold hands and took possession of nance's warm ones nothing but a wretched headache it will go if i lie down all the afternoon and keep quiet to-night nance looked up but how can you at the play i'm not going to the play not going clodagh drew her sister close now darling don't make a fuss if you say one word of objection my head will get ten times worse than it is you are just to listen and do as i tell you you are to telephone to mrs escoit and explain what has happened she will do the chaperoning instead of me but walter walter is to go with you you are to be as nice to him as you possibly can be everything is to be exactly as we arranged exactly as we arranged she raised herself on her elbow to enforce the words and what about lord deerhurst clodagh did not answer immediately then sinking back among her pillows she spoke in a somewhat hurried voice that will be all right i i took your advice and sent him two messages one to carlton house terrace 
and one to his club. He won't be at the theatre. But if he doesn't get the message, if he comes all the same, then be polite to him, and now go like a good child. Don't ask any more questions. Don't say anything. Let me see you when you're dressed, and I'll give you a letter for Walter. I'm afraid I can't dine with you. I'll just have something sent in here. Then, as if in sudden remorse, she put her arms about Nance's neck and drew her close to her. "'Darling, forgive me if I seem impossible.' At half-past eight Nance left the house, having shown herself to her sister, made a last loving inquiry as to her health, and taken possession of the note for Gore. As she passed out of the bedroom Clodagh threw off the fur rug that lay across her feet and sat up with an expression of sharp attention. As the sound of the closing hall door reached her ears, she drew a little breath of excitement and rose from the couch with no appearance of her recent indisposition. Without calling in Simonetta, she changed from the white silk wrapper she was wearing into a black walking dress and, crossing to one of the wardrobes, took out a black hat and veil. She scarcely looked at herself as she smoothed her hair and fastened on her hat. Beneath the enforced repression of the afternoon there burned in her mind a certain sense of adventure, of enterprise, that turned her hot and cold. For though the Irish nature may procrastinate, it takes action with a very keen zest when once circumstance has compelled a decisive step. Having finished her dressing, she picked up a pair of gloves, switched off the electric light, and left the room. In the corridor outside she met one of the maids, but without giving the woman time to show any surprise she made haste to offer an explanation. "'I have forgotten to tell Miss Ashland something of importance,' she said. "'I shall have to drive to the theatre and see her. Please ring for the lift. The porter will find me a cab.' And without waiting to observe the effect of the somewhat disjointed statement she passed to the hall door. A few minutes later the hall porter had put her into a hansom, telling the cabman to drive to the Apollo Theatre. While the cab doors were being closed and the order given, Clodagh sat very still, and for a few minutes after they had started she lay back in her seat, watching the familiar succession of lights and trees and indistinct masked faces that formed the nightly picture between Knightsbridge and Piccadilly. But at last, as Hyde Park Corner loomed into view, she sat upright and, raising her hand, shook the roof-trap. The cabman checked the pace of his horse and, opening the little door, looked down. "'Don't mind the Apollo,' she said. "'Drive to Carlton House Terrace instead.' The man muttered an assent, and, wheeling his horse to the right, cut across the traffic. Five or six minutes passed while the cab threaded its way across the green park past Buckingham Palace into St. James Park. Then Clodagh gained her first close view of Deerhurst townhouse. For one moment she felt daunted by the unfamiliarity of its aspect, but the next she rallied her determination, and stepping from the cab paid her fare and walked resolutely across the pavement to the imposing door. It was opened at once by a servant in very somber and decorous livery, who, having thrown the door wide, looked at her, then looked at the cab just wheeling away from the curb. There was nothing uncivil in the man's glance, nothing that one could reasonably complain of, yet to her intense annoyance Clodagh colored. "'Is Lord Deerhurst at home?' she asked. The servant's eyes left the retreating cab. "'Have you an appointment with his lordship?' If he is in, Lord Deerhurst will see me. I am Mrs. Milbank. 
at the coldness of her tone and her ready mention of her name, his manner changed, though a flicker of curiosity passed across his face. "'Are you the lady his lordship is expecting?' he said in a different voice. "'Yes, Lord Deerhurst is expecting me.' There was a slight pause. Then, with the air of one who admits a novice into inner mysteries, he stepped back, ushering her up into the spacious hall. "'Will you kindly step this way?' he said. "'His lordship is in his study.' Glad that the ordeal of entering the house was over, Clodagh readily followed the man across the hall, up a wide stairs, and along a softly carpeted corridor. At the end of the passage he paused in front of a curtained door, and, pushing the curtain back, entered an unseen room. "'The lady your lordship is expecting,' she heard him say. Then he turned quickly and threw the door open for her. An instant later she had entered Deerhurst's room. At the moment her thoughts were too confused to permit of detailed observation of the room, although afterwards, when the interview had taken place, and she had time to sift reality from imagination, the scene and its central figure were destined to stand out with the accuracy of a picture that has made an indelible, if an unconscious, impression upon the observer's mind. The room was an anomaly, viewed from a studious point of view, but the merely artistic eye would have found nothing to cample at. It was not large as one counts rooms in a great London house, though elsewhere it would have seemed spacious. Numberless books in costly bindings were strewn about on tables and in cases, but they were not the books of the thinker. They were the romances, the memoirs, the poems of the last half-century, but not one volume dealt with science or even with philosophy. The walls were panelled in dark red, some beautiful lamps hung from the ceiling, and in a distant corner a large silver bowl full of crimson roses was set up as if in homage to beauty before an exquisitely modelled statue of Venus. In a quick, half-comprehended flash of instinct it came to Clodagh that she had never really seen Deerhurst until now, as he stood backgrounded by the atmosphere he himself had created. He was dressed as he had been on the night in Venice when she had first seen him. He wore the curiously cut evening clothes that he always affected, and which gave to his appearance the peculiar distinction that set him apart from other men. The diamond ring that she had noticed on that first night glittered on his hand, and, as then, the black ribbon of his eyeglass showed across his shirt-front. But more clearly than in the dusk of the Venetian night she saw the long outline of his face, the peculiar artificial pallor of his skin, the cold vigilance of his eyes, and in that moment of entry a faint indescribable hesitancy chilled her resolution. Involuntarily she halted on the threshold of the room. But Deerhurst gave no time for her indecision to mature. As the door closed upon the servant he came quickly forward and took the hand she mechanically offered him. For one moment he held her fingers closely, then he lifted them and, before she could anticipate the action, pressed them to his lips. That a man should kiss a woman's hand by way of greeting is not necessarily a significant thing. It may be a slightly ostentatious act, but it may be nothing more. Uncertain how to construe the movement, Clodagh gave a faint laugh and withdrew her fingers. "'Were you very much surprised to get my wire?' She moved away from him into the middle of the room. Now that she put it to the test the interview seemed infinitely more difficult than when contemplated from a distance. 
she felt nervous and ill at ease. Watching her with his close attentive look, Deerhurst drew forward a chair. "'Sit down, little lady,' he said in his thin, impassive voice. Reassured by the formality of the action, she took the proffered seat. "'Now take off your gloves. We shall feel more at home.' Again she gave a little laugh. "'My gloves? But I must go in five minutes.' "'In five minutes? Where the night is so young?' He drew forward another chair and sat down beside her. "'Do you know how glad and proud I feel?' She looked up quickly. His tone had subtly changed. "'Lord Deerhurst,' she said, "'I must explain that the reason I came—the reason I came instead of sending for you or writing—' Deerhurst leant forward and laid his cold hands over hers. "'Let me take these off. It feels so very formal and unlike ourselves.' He began softly to open the buttons of her glove and draw it deftly from her hand. "'But you haven't listened to what I said,' she objected. "'I want to explain at once so that you can understand at once.' Before answering, he drew off the second glove and laid the two upon the table. "'Why should you explain? Have I ever been lacking in imagination?' "'No, oh, no, I did not mean that.' "'Then why explain anything? Don't you think we have fenced with each other long enough?' He picked up the gloves quickly and again laid them down. "'Don't you think I can understand without explanation?' "'Understand? Why you came to me to-night? Understand?' why I came to-night. I think so. He turned and looked straight into her eyes. At the look and the movement the blood leaped to her face. She drew back into her chair. And why do you think I came to-night? Very swiftly Deerhurst bent forward. I think, little lady, that you came because you know that a man cannot be played with forever, and because, being a very proud woman, you will not say in so many words, I give you leave to love me dear little Clodagh. He suddenly put out his hand towards hers. It has all been very delightful, your reticence and your innocence, but we both know that such pretty things are perishable. Clodagh sat perfectly still. She did not attempt to withdraw her hand. She did not attempt to rise. She sat watching him as if fascinated, while the hundred recollections of looks, of words, of insinuations directed against her and him by Lady Frances Hope, by Rose Bathurst, by other women of their set, strayed in nightmare fashion across her mind. Deerhurst sat watching her, his hand holding hers, his eyes steadily reading her face. Then suddenly he gave a short laugh and leant back in his chair. "'Little actress,' he said. The words, but more than the words, the tone in which they were spoken, roused her. She rose incontinently to her feet, a sudden memory of Seracolt and the card-room at Tufnell sweeping across her mind. "'Lord Deerhurst,' she said breathlessly, "'there is some terrible mistake. You utterly, utterly misunderstand.' It was Deerhurst's turn to show emotion. For the first time in her knowledge of him the mask of impassivity dropped from his face. His cold eyes gleamed unpleasantly. "'And how, little lady, I am not often accused of misreading men and women.' "'You think—' She paused, unable to find the word she needed. She felt like one who has inadvertently stepped upon shifting sands where the ground had seemed most secure. "'You think—' she began again, but she got no further. With a silent movement Deerhurst laid his hand upon her arm. "'Don't you think we have fenced long enough? 
Don't you think I have been extraordinarily patient? Clodagh turned very cold. Patient, she said indistinctly. He drew her suddenly closer to him, and before she could resist he had kissed her hair, her lips, her neck. Yes, patient, because I have never before asked for this, because I have been content to kiss your hand, when I might long ago. He bent over her again. But something in the white face and wild eyes that confronted him arrested him. He drew back and looked at her. Come, he said, the play is over. Give me a kiss of your own accord. Clodagh said nothing. Terror mastered her. Come, give me a kiss. She lay almost passive in his embrace, her lips parted, her eyes fixed on his. He gave another short laugh, half indulgent, half triumphant. What a little saint! Come, show me why you came tonight. Be human, be what you know you are. Clodagh made no answer, but he felt her sway a little in his arms. What is it? he asked sharply. Self-annoyance was written on his face, though he asked the question solicitously. "'I feel faint,' she said. "'A little faint.' "'Faint. Nonsense. It will pass. Rest for a moment.' Without ceremony he half lifted her across the room to a couch that stood between the fireplace and the door. "'Poor little girl. Don't be frightened. It will pass in a minute. Is there anything you would like?' Clodagh opened her eyes. "'A little water, I think,' she said in a tremulous voice. His face cleared. "'Or some champagne. Nothing would pick you up like a glass of champagne. Why did I not think of it before? Lie perfectly still. We will have some champagne in one moment.' With the possibilities held out by the idea, he turned eagerly from the couch and crossed the room to the electric bell that was placed beside his desk. But quick as lightning, the instant his back was turned, Clodagh was on her feet. With a movement so swift and silent that only fear could have inspired it, she slipped to the door, opened it, and was speeding down the long corridor to the stairs. The house was silent. The upper portion seemed darker than when she had arrived. The hall alone lay brightly lighted, a place of hope and promise figuring the world outside, the good, wholesome world lying suddenly within her reach. She ran down the broad stairs, indifferent to the fact that the servant who had admitted her had risen from a seat near the door and was looking at her in frank surprise. Her ears were strained to catch any sound from upstairs, her eyes were on the door. As she hurried across the hall the man came forward. "'Do you require a cab, madam?' he asked a little doubtfully. "'No, just open the door.' Still, with a shade of uncertainty, he obeyed, and at the same instant Deerhurst's voice sounded from the head of the stairs. What he said, whether he addressed her or the servant, Clodagh never knew. At the mere sound of his high, thin tones she went blindly forward through the open door. As she passed down the steps a cab wheeled round the corner of Carlton House Terrace. Instinctively she looked towards it, still animated by the desire for flight. But the next instant she looked away, realizing that it already held a fare and that there was luggage on the roof. In the perturbation of the moment she failed to see what was infinitely more material, that the occupant of the cab was Valentine Serracald, that he had leant forward in sudden eager curiosity as she passed down the steps of the house to which he was driving, and that as she turned her head in his direction he had drawn quickly back into the shadow of his seat. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16
almost immediately a second cab appeared, and finding it at her disposal, Clodagh hailed it eagerly and gave the address of the flat. As the horse sped away in the direction of her home, she sat almost motionless, her only gesture being to lift her hands to her eyes from time to time as if to shut out some near and unpleasant vision. Life in its crudest, its most repulsive aspect stared at her out of the darkness. She sat crushed by the disillusionment of the last hour, and a new furtiveness, born of the new realization, assailed her when at last she stepped from the cab at her own door. With an instinctive lessening of her natural fearlessness she hurried through the vestibule and passed straight to the lift. Gaining her own door she let herself in by her latch-key and then paused, looking fearfully and eagerly about, in expectation of some unwished-for sound. But everything in the flat was still, and crossing the hall she entered her own room. The electric light had been switched on and the place set in order, and Simonetta sat at the dressing-table mending a piece of lace. "'No one has come back,' Clodagh asked. "'No one, signora.' Simonetta arose and turned to her mistress. Seeing the expression on her face, Clodagh nervously anticipated her words. "'My head still aches,' she said. "'I think you may go. I should like to be alone.' From previous knowledge of her moods the woman made no protestations, but folded up her work and went quietly towards the door. As she gained it, Clodagh turned. "'Simonetta!' "'Yes, signora. Tell the servants they are to say nothing to anyone of my having gone out to-night. You understand?' "'I understand, signora. That is all. Good night.' "'Good night, signora.' It would be futile to relate the thoughts that passed through Clodagh's mind in the hour that followed Simonetta's departure. But when, at half-past eleven, Nance returned from the theatre, and hurrying to the bedroom opened the door swiftly and anxiously, she was standing by one of the open windows, her hat and veil still on, her gaze fixed resolutely on the shadowy trees of the park. Crossing the threshold softly, Nance tiptoed into the room. "'Clo,' she whispered, "'how are you?' "'Better.' Then she paused in pleased surprise. "'What? You've been out. Then you are better. How glad Walter will be. He insisted on coming back to know how you were.' At Gore's name, Clodagh started and looked round. "'Walter, here?' she said. "'Yes, but, Clo, what's the matter? You've been crying.' Clodagh stepped to her side and laid her hand imperatively on her arm. "'Hush,' she whispered. "'Go back at once and tell Walter that I'm—that I'm asleep. Tell him that Simonetta said I was better and fell asleep. Tell him anything you can think of that would make him happy and get him away. He must be got away. I can't see him. Do you understand, Nance? He must be got away.' For one surprised moment Nance looked at her sister. Then, conquering her curiosity, she turned quietly and moved to the door. "'All right, darling,' she said assuredly. "'I'll send him away happy.' Clodagh put her hand across her eyes. "'Thank God,' she said. "'If you had asked me one more question, I couldn't have borne it. Send him away, and then come back.' In silence Nance left the room. Five minutes passed. Ten minutes. Then Clodagh's straining ears caught the closing of the outer door, and her hand dropped to her side in a gesture of excessive relief. "'Thank God,' she said again. When Nance re-entered she was still standing in the middle of the room, her face white and tear-stained, her figure braced. "'Nance,' she said, almost before the door had closed upon her sister, "'I am going to tell you things I have never told you before, 
I feel I shall go mad tonight if I don't tell someone. Don't ask me any questions. Just listen and, if you can, love me. Nance paused just inside the door. Her own face looked pale above the shimmering blue and silver of her evening dress. Her dark blue eyes were full of a peculiarly tender light. "'I don't love you, Chloe,' she said below her breath. "'I adore you. Tell me whatever you like.' Clodagh threw out her hands despairingly. "'I'm not worth love like that,' she cried. "'You'll know it when I'm finished. Do you remember long ago, Nance, when James and I went to Venice? Do you remember my letters from Venice?' Nance showed no surprise at the sudden irrelevant questions. "'All of them,' she answered. "'I have them all. Then you remember how I met Francis Hope and Val Sarikald and Lord Deerhurst. I remember. I was very much alone at that time, Nance. James was only a shadow in my life, and they, they seemed like sunshine, and I wanted the sunshine. I have always been like a child, turning to bright, tawdry things. Chloe, you're upset tonight. You're ill.' no i'm not i've been seeing myself and seeing my life to-night i like these people i like these men who talked to me and flattered me and ignored the fact that i had a husband i liked them and encouraged them and one night on the balcony of the palazzo ugacini she stopped then made a sudden gesture as if to sweep unnecessary things aside but i won't talk of that she cried it is the later time i want to come to the time after james death when I met Francis Hope again. She paused to regain her breath, but the look of determination did not leave her face. Her dark eyes seemed almost to challenge Nance's. When I went to Monte Carlo with Francis, she went on, I did not go to forget poor James' death as you believed. I went to forget something else that had made me much more unhappy, and the way I set about forgetting was to gamble. Yes, I know what you feel, I know what you think, but it cannot alter anything. I gambled. I lost large sums of money that Francis advanced me. I had to borrow, because there were formalities to be gone through about James' will before I could draw my income. Then I came back to London. I met Val Sarikald and Lord Deerhurst again. I took an expensive flat. I lived like people six times as well off as myself. I gambled again. Clodagh! Clodagh put up her hand. Wait, it's all leading up to something. I was utterly foolish, utterly mad. I borrowed again to pay my debts at bridge. Then one day Francis asked me for her money. It seemed like the end of the world, but it was a debt of honor. It couldn't be shirked. I wrote her out a check that left me beggared of the half-year's income I had been counting on to put me straight. Oh, Chloe, Chloe, why wasn't I here? Yes, why wasn't somebody here? But the worst is to come. I did not know where to look. I did not know where to turn when suddenly, quite suddenly, I thought of your thousand pounds. Nance gave a little gasp. I remembered that, and Nance... Nance, can you guess what happened? Nance did not attempt to answer. I took that thousand pounds. I stole it. Don't say anything. Don't try to excuse me. I want to face things. I told myself I would write and tell you. Then I told myself I would say it when you came back. But when you did come, she halted for a second, when you did come, Nance, you loved me, you admired me, you respected me, and, and I couldn't. When you asked me for the money that night at Tufnell, I knew I would have to find it and pay it back without making any confession to you. A sound that was almost a moan escaped Nance's lips. Yes, Clodagh cried, yes, 
I know exactly how great a fool I was. But what is done is done. The day you drove to Winchley with Lady Diana and Walter, I stayed behind to write to Mr. Barnard and ask him to advance me the money. But somehow I couldn't do that either. And then, hate me, Nans, hate me if you like. Lord Deerhurst came to me when I was most disheartened, most depressed, and offered to lend me the money. And you took it, Nance said almost quietly. I took it. Yes, I took it. I have always been like that, always, always, grasping at the easy things, letting the hard ones slip by. And now, now, now? Nance, listen. She took a quick step forward. It was because of that loan that I couldn't slight him since we came back to town. You were right, you were quite right in all you advised, but I couldn't do it. He had lent me the money. He had seemed my best friend. I felt I couldn't do it until yesterday. But yesterday, when he left and Walter spoke of him, I knew there was no choice. It was my own happiness or his friendship. And I... I decided for my own happiness. She stopped and drew a quick deep breath. Nance clasped her hands, fearfully conscious that more was still to come. When I have a difficult thing to do, Clodagh went on, I must do it quickly. I can't wait. I can't prepare and plan. I can't brood over things. After Walter left yesterday, I decided that what must be done must be done at once. I made up my mind that I would see Lord Deerhurst tonight, that I would be quite candid with him, explain my position, and appeal to his generosity to let our friendship end. Then tonight, tonight was all a deception. I had no headache. I wasn't ill. I shammed it all that I might be alone and while we were at the theatre you sent for him. No, I went to Carlton House Terrace to see him. Went to see him? Clo! I said you could hate me, do hate me, despise me, think anything you like. I went to see him, I went to his house, at night, alone, thinking, believing, oh! She made a gesture of acute self-disgust. Nance, need I say it all? Need I? Need I? Can't you understand without my saying? All that I had imagined about his friendship was untrue. Such people don't understand friendship. All along he had been waiting, quietly and silently, like one of those horrible hawks we used to watch at Orristown, waiting to swoop down when the right moment came. With an almost hysterical gesture she put her hand to her throat. Nance's face had become very white, but in the intensity of her pity and love she did not dare to approach her sister. "'Clo,' she whispered, "'you must tell Walter.' Clodagh's face suddenly flamed. "'Tell Walter! Tell Walter that I owe Deerhurst a thousand pounds, that I lied to him and to you all to-night, that I might go alone to Deerhurst's house? You don't know, Walter. There is only one thing in the world that I can do, that I must do, and that is to go to Ireland and arrange about raising money on my share of Orristown. It can be done somehow. Father did it. I shall not eat or sleep or think until that thousand pounds is paid. Prompted by a swift and eager impulse, Nance's face flushed, and she ran forward. Then, almost as she reached her sister's side, her expression changed. She suddenly curbed her impetuosity. Perhaps it would be a good idea, she said slowly. When would you like to go? Tonight, if I could, I feel, oh, I feel. Clodagh put her hands over her face. Nance stood watching her for a moment longer. Then she slipped softly to her side and put one arm about her neck. "'Don't be sad, darling,' she murmured. "'Don't be sad. You shall go to Ireland tomorrow, if you like. And all the planning, 
only explaining to Walter and to everybody, will be done by me. And so it came to pass, in the extraordinary way with which events sometimes precipitate themselves, that at four o'clock on the following afternoon Clodagh was borne swiftly out of Paddington Station on the first stage of her journey to Ireland. The chain of incidents that had been forged by Nance to make this departure feasible, as well as possible, had been too minute and complex to make any impression upon Clodagh's mind. Her confession the night before had been more a confession to herself than a conscious unburdening of her soul to other ears, and having made it she was satisfied to resign herself into any hands that were willing and capable of guiding her actions. The first incident of the morning had been a visit from Gore, but it had been Nance who had interviewed him first, and a quarter of an hour later, when Clodagh had come into the drawing-room, nervous and guilty, she had found him full of sympathy and solicitude for what he believed to be her sudden recall to Ireland. Then had come the escorts, and with their advent more solicitude and more sympathy. Lunchtime had crept upon them almost unawares, and, again on Nance's initiative, the whole party had adjourned to the Hyde Park Hotel and had partaken of a meal in company. More than once during the crowded hours of the morning Clodagh had striven to draw her sister aside, but Nance, animated by an unusual excitement, had evaded every possibility of a tete It was only at the door of the railway carriage, when Gore and Escoit were superintending the labelling of her luggage, and Mrs. Escoit and Daisy were buying books and papers for her amusement, that at last they had a word in private. Clodagh was standing in the open doorway of the carriage, and Nance was on the step when, quite suddenly, the latter put up her hand and pressed a letter between her sister's fingers. "'My proper good-bye is in this letter, darling,' she said. "'I couldn't say it before everybody. Kiss me, will you?' Impulsively Clodagh bent forward, and the sisters exchanged a long kiss. "'You have been an angel, Nance. I will thank you when—when—' "'No, no, there can never be thanks between you and me. We are one. Remember that. Always, Clo, always.' She drew back quickly as the rest of the party came hurrying to the carriage. And so the good-byes had all been said, and the train had steamed out of the station. She had watched the platform melt into obscurity, and then had dropped into her seat with that sense of quiet, of flatness that follows the moments of parting. The long railway journey in the night crossing to Ireland still lay between her and action. She looked impatiently at her travelling companions, an uninteresting brother and sister who had already buried themselves behind newspapers in their respective corners of the carriage, and almost angrily she turned to the heap of magazines lying beside her. But as she did so her glance brightened. Nance's letter was still to be read. In the midst of her perplexities a tender thought flashed over her mind as she opened the envelope, and her face softened instinctively as she began to read but gradually as her glance passed from one line to the other her expression changed. She sat upright in her seat, her bearing altered in a sudden inexplicable manner. "'Darling, darling Clo,' the letter began, "'I must have seemed a wretch last night and to-day. I mean, I must have seemed very strange, showing hardly any surprise or sympathy at anything you told me, and taking your going to Ireland as though it were a thing that happened every day.' But, Clo, it wasn't because I didn't love and worship you, and feel for you in every tiny thing, 
but because I was afraid you would guess what was really in my mind, what I was plotting and planning all the time. Chloe, I wanted you to go to Ireland because, oh, do forgive me for even writing it, I wanted to get you away. Dearest, you are to do no more silly things. At the risk of hurting you, I am saying this. You used to say long ago that I saw more than you because I looked on instead of doing things myself. Chloe, you are not to raise money on Oristown because you have no need to do it. Lord Deerhurst has been paid his thousand pounds, and you are free, quite free. My little sister, imagine that my arms are round your neck so tight that you can't be vexed. When you told me last night that my thousand pounds really belonged to him, my first thought was to say, well, let's give him back as much of it as we have left. But I stopped in time. You were not in the mood last night to take the most loving favor in the world. You wanted to sacrifice yourself. So instead of saying what was in my heart, I locked it up closely and thought about it all night. And before you were awake this morning, I sent for Pierce and asked him to lend me three hundred pounds, the three hundred we had spent out of the thousand. Don't say anything, darling. Don't be angry. Don't even think. Pierce was perfectly sweet. He never asked one question, and at three o'clock today, just after we came back from lunch, I sent a thousand pounds in notes to Carlton House Terrace with a card of yours enclosed. Darling, don't be vexed. Don't question it. It is right, I know. It was a debt of honor, in the fullest sense. And now, Chloe, it's all finished, all done with, all past, and you can repay me the money slowly in years and years. Be happy, oh, darling, be happy. Go back to Oristown as I would have you to go back, with your heart full of all the great good true love that Walter and I have for you. Ride and walk and swim, and be without one care, and in a week or two, when the hateful thought of last night has been swept away by the splendid strong winds, come back to us a newer, wiser, happier Clodagh. Darling, I am, now and always, your true sister, Nance. Clodagh closed the letter. Then suddenly she rose from her seat and stepped from the carriage into the narrow corridor. The engine was swinging forward at great speed. The train itself was swaying to the swift motion. Outside the pleasant English country seemed to fly past the long line of windows. For a second she stood by the carriage door. Then she stepped forward to the open window, and leaning out let the strong current of air play upon her face, blowing back the hair from her temples. How good God was! how good the world was! The great machinery of the train, the great wheels of life, ground out the same sudden song. She was free. By the unlimited power of love she had been made free. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 It was eleven o'clock on the day following when Clodagh's train steamed into the little station of Muscarie. Her boat had arrived in Cork in the early hours of the morning, but she had only given herself time to take a hurried breakfast at one of the hotels before driving to the railway station. Now that she had set foot in Ireland, the racial love of home had awakened in her, making the hours leaden until she found herself at Oristown. The great lifting of the spirit that Nance's letter had brought into being had not subsided since the moment she had arisen from her seat in the train filled with the knowledge that an insupportable burden had been lifted from her. 
At Reading she had dispatched an answering telegram to her sister, and for nearly an hour afterwards she had sat in the corner of her carriage, covering sheet after sheet of notepaper with hasty penciling. Two letters were the result, one to Nance, all love, all spontaneous gratitude, the other to Gore, full of tenderness, of promise, of almost vehement reassurance. Thus the long and usually monotonous train journey ran itself out, and in the confused darkness of the crowded landing stage she went on board the boat at New Milford. The crossing of the sea had ever been a delight to Clodagh. The love of the sea, the almost mystical knowledge of it, was in her blood, and that night for many hours she had paced the deck rejoicing after a fashion understood by few in each forward plunge of the vessel, in the sense of exhilaration and action conveyed each time the prow dipped to cut the waves and send the spray flying. She was going home. There had seemed a curious thrilling sensation in the knowledge. She was going home. After many experiences she was returning to the spot where her life had first separated its thread from the great tapestry of existence, the spot where happiness and unhappiness had first presented themselves as differentiated things, where the elemental facts of pain and pleasure had been first demonstrated to her unformed mind. The memory of Orristown had materialized as she had walked to and fro under the summer sky powdered with faint stars, and she had closed her eyes until the salt sting of the sea had conjured up the square white house, the green fields, and the long shelving rocks. The picture had remained with her long after she retired to her cabin, and had been still before her mind when the first low line of Irish land had broken across her vision in the silvery morning. Then it had been dispersed by more immediate things, the arrival at Cork, the breakfast, the drive across the town to the Muscarie train, until at last the shrill whistle of the small engine announcing that her destination was reached swept everything but the incidents of the moment from her consideration. As the train stopped she sprang to her feet and leaned out of the window. How intensely familiar it was! The narrow platform, the wooden paling behind which the incursion of summer visitors to Muscarigue congregated each day to watch the cork trains arrive, the slovenly good-natured porter absolutely unaltered by the passage of time. Her thoughts swam as she tried vainly to reconcile her own many experiences with this amazing changelessness. Then all need for such a comparison was brushed aside as a tall figure came striding down the platform, followed by a couple of dogs, and she recognized Lars Ashland. Her first conscious thought was, how fine-looking he has grown, her second, how badly his clothes are made. Then she laughed to herself from happiness and from that sense of comradeship and clannishness to which the Irish nature is so susceptible. "'Larry!' she cried a moment later, as she threw the carriage door open. But her dog Mick was the first to gain her side. Leaping forward at the sound of her voice, he sprang into the carriage, whimpering with joy. "'Mick! Darlin' Mick! Oh, you bad thing!' she laughed again delightedly. Then she turned, flushed and radiant, to greet her cousin. "'Hold him, Larry! That's better! Now, how are you?' she held out her hand and laid it in Ashland's disengaged one. Larry flushed with excitement and embarrassment. "'How are you, Chloe? You're awfully unchanged. Let me help you out. The trap is waiting.' As in a dream she passed through the little station that had seemed so large and imposing to her childish eyes 
in the time when a day's shopping in Cork had represented the acme of adventure and enterprise, but halfway down the narrow platform she paused. "'Oh, the sea, Larry!' she exclaimed, drawing in a long, deep breath. "'The heavenly smell of the sea!' Then she suddenly caught sight of Burke, waiting, as he might have waited six years ago, beside the high old-fashioned trap. "'The same trap!' she said with a little gasp. Ashland laughed. "'The same, only for a coat of varnish. But won't you speak to Tim?' He added the last a trifle diffidently, with a shy glance at her costly clothes and her general air of refinement and distinction. Without a word she went forward. "'Tim,' she said very softly. The old man turned quickly, then drew back. But Clodagh held out her hand, regardless of the staring summer visitors. "'Tim, I'm not so changed that you don't know me?' The old man remained motionless. "'I'd know you if I was under the sod and the sound of your voice come near me,' he said almost solemnly. Clodagh felt her throat tighten, as the old horny hand was slowly extended to clasp her own. "'I'm glad to be home, Tim,' she said impulsively. "'I'm glad to be home.' There was a delay of several minutes while the porter extricated her luggage from the van, and during this interval she found time to admire the young horse which had been bred at Oristown and to make friends with the Irish terrier that had been Mick's companion on the run to Muskery besides asking a dozen questions concerning the people and things at Carrigmore. Then at last the trunk was deposited under the roomy seat of the trap, and Ashland stepped forward to help her into her place. "'Larry,' she said, pausing with her foot on the step, "'may I drive? I'd love to drive.' Ashland gave a ready assent, and taking his own seat, handed her the reins while Burke mounted to the back of the trap. It was wonderful to Clodagh that first gathering up of reins rendered hard by long service and Irish rain, that first forward start into the strong sea-scented air. A sudden joy filled her. She was young. The world was a goodly place when one studied it in this untainted atmosphere. Above all, she was possessor of the great prize, love. Far away in the tumult and press of the greatest city in the world, the man she set above all others thought of her, waited for her, trusted her. Out of her own bright confidence she made the sunny morning brighter as she drove along the well-remembered roads, halting every mile or so to gaze at some thrice-familiar object that stood now, as it had stood, in the days of her babyhood. At last Carrigmore was reached. She saw the clustering pink-and-white cottages of the village, the sleeping ruins guarded by the round tower, the long yellow strand and the glassy bay on whose farther headlands stood the house of Oristown, a square white patch to be seen for many miles. She looked at it all long and closely. "'Oh, Larry,' she said below her breath, "'how wonderfully the same it is. Nance told me, but I couldn't imagine it. Why, there's scarcely a weed changed.' Ashland laughed a little. "'We didn't think you'd care much about it after Italy in places,' he said with a slight touch of shy awkwardness that seemed more than ever to link the present with the past. "'Not care about it, Larry.' Her voice quivered. Then she laughed quickly and touched the horse with the whip. "'Shall we go straight to Oristown, or shall I run in and see Aunt Fan?' Ashland looked slightly distressed. "'You're tired after the journey,' he said, "'and anyway it's one of her bad days.' They come oftener than ever now. Tomorrow she'll enjoy seeing you more. A quick recollection of her aunt on her bad days swept over Clodagh's mind, 
and she looked up suddenly into Larry's handsome, spirited face. "'Is she often cross now, Larry?' she asked, as she might have asked when they were children. Ashland turned at the sound of her voice. His diffidence forsook him. The old comradeship, the old sense of sympathy and understanding, came rushing back. "'She is harder than ever to get on with,' he said, "'and every day seems worse than the last. Sometimes—' He stopped, but a shadow of discontent, of depression, had darkened his face. "'Poor Larry,' Clodagh said very softly, and without further comment she turned the horse's head in the direction of Orristown. The cousins spoke rather less during the drive along the low, flat road lying parallel to the strand, but despite the silence each was conscious of an awakened fellowship, and as they descended the sharp hill that led to the gates of Orristown, Clodagh pointed with her whip to where the sky hung low and brooding over the glassy line of the horizon. "'This heat will break in a storm, Larry,' she said, aware of having spoken the same words a hundred times in almost the same spot. Ashland scanned the sea thoughtfully. "'I believe you're right,' he answered. "'But a puff of wind would do no harm. You'd like a scud across the bay, wouldn't you?' Clodagh's eyes danced. "'Love it,' she substituted enthusiastically. "'Come for me at ten tomorrow, Larry, and we'll sail back together to Carrigmore. We'll have a long day there and see everything, and then you'll come back with me to dinner.' She flashed a quick smile at him as she piloted the trap through the rusty gates. As they swept up the long, narrow drive she looked eagerly to right and left. Then suddenly she gave a little laugh of pleasure and waved her whip towards a field that skirted the avenue in which a very old man had paused in the act of digging potatoes and now stood in an attitude of rigid salutation, a broken felt hat held above his head. "'Look, Larry, it's Pat Foley. Poor old Pat. Isn't it lovely the way everyone remembers?' Her eyes filled with sudden tears as they passed the last clump of trees and came full upon the old white house. Then, as the horse drew up sharply under the well-remembered iron balcony, she gave a little cry and threw the reins to Ashland. Hannah had opened the hall door and stood broad-faced, honest, beaming as of old. "'My darling!' she cried. "'My darling!' And in an instant, regardless of her dress and of the eyes of Ashland and Bert, Clodagh sprang to the ground and rushed into the arms that had so often sheltered her. At eight o'clock on the same evening Clodagh, with Mick at her feet, sat in a shabby leather armchair by the open window of the bedroom that she had shared with Nance for so many years. Outside the soft beating of the sea against the rocks came to her ears with strange familiarity. By her side stood a small table set out with a homely tea, while in front of her, jealously watchful that she did justice to the meal, stood Hannah. "'And tis a millionaire they tells me the child is going to marry?' she asked in one of her tentative roundabout questions. "'Glory be to God, and she only out of the school!' Clodagh glanced through the window at the golden evening sky. "'You married me before I had been to school, Hannah,' she said below her breath. The old shrewd light gleamed in Hannah's eyes. She moved awkwardly and yet softly round the tea-table, and laid her broad hand on Clodagh's shoulder. "'Many's the day I do be pondering on that match, Miss Clodagh,' she said earnestly. "'The ways of God are dark, and what I done, I done for the best.' Clodagh, touched by the deep solicitude of the voice, put her own smooth hand over the old rough one. "'I'm sure God did everything as it should be done, Hannah, because it—it it has all come right in the end.' 
Hannah's hand dropped from her shoulder in sudden excitement. "'Miss Clodagh,' she said breathlessly, "'Miss Clodagh, is it a husband you'll be thinking to take?' Again Clodagh's gaze wandered across the sky, melting now from gold to orange. "'There is a man who wants to take me for his wife, Hannah,' she corrected very gently. "'And you do be putting him before everything in the world?' Clodagh turned swiftly and met the small anxious eyes so much before everything that if i were to lose him now i should lose she paused for an instant then added myself hannah's eyes narrowed in the intensity of her concern and he do be caring for you miss clodagh clodagh leant forward and the warm light from the sunset touched and transfigured her face yes he cares she said very slowly End of chapter seventeen recording by tom weiss tomsaudiobooks.com